And Daniel 1 is where we're headed, by the way. If you'll allow me to maybe introduce my wife and I a little bit. We've been here a year and a half. I think that most of you know us. I've probably taught in your Sunday school class. You've been here for a Sunday night that I've done. But I guess I shouldn't assume that. So I'll take two minutes just to give you a brief Lycan's bio. I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Most people do not realize that I grew up with Pastor Delaney and Danielle. Uh, Pastor Delaney is two years my senior, and, and Danielle, I think, was in my grade, or we're really close to the same age. But we actually grew up together in Kentucky. My wife is from California. I wasn't born there, but raised there her, her whole life, basically. And we both went to Bible college and things like that, and through a, a long series of events, we met we did long distance for a year. I was getting my bachelor's degree in Arkansas. She was working in California, and we did long distance. And I wouldn't trade that for the world, just talking to each other every day and getting to know each other in that way. And we did Skype and FaceTime and a lot of those other things. But we met, and then ultimately I got my master's degree, and after that we got married in 2010. So almost six years. Next month will be six years for us. We worked at a church in Northern California for about five years before the Lord began to kind of work in our hearts and, and impress upon us to do seminary and sharpen the axe, so to speak, for a couple years so that we could serve him better for decades to come. And we have a couple kids. We have Brennan Truth, who is two years old, little cotton top. And everyone asks me, you know, where does his blonde hair come from? And it's actually from me. I don't have it now, obviously, but I used to. And then we have another one on the way due here in about three weeks. Willow Grace is her name. So in, a, in an angel announcement near you soon in your bulletin, there's going to be Willow Grace in a picture of her. So that's our life in a nutshell. But thank you so much for welcoming us. I should make it very clear that my wife is due with a baby girl on August the 14th, and Danielle Delaney is not <laughs> N-O-T. It was stated last week by Pastor Barton, that, and he just got us confused, that Danielle was pregnant with a girl due on August 14th, and she's not. So all of you that have sent her texts this week, you know, congratulations, you know, you hide eight months so well. That's, that's not, she's not pregnant. She, there's not a baby coming three weeks from now. So... That should, be, that should be made clear. If you don't mind, staying with me. We're going to read a few verses here in Daniel chapter 1. And I will recap last week, or actually I guess it was the last time I spoke to you, which was two weeks ago, briefly. And we covered verses 1 and 2 and just laid the foundation for this series. And that's that God is sovereign through chaos. And the book of Daniel really is not a book about Daniel. It's a book about God. It's about how big and strong and powerful and in control he is. And really, that's, that's true of the entire Bible. There's no hero of the Bible other than God. We know that. But throughout the Bible, you see God's sovereignty as this backdrop in the Pentateuch, in the historical books, even in the prophets. But Daniel is one book, one book where God's sovereignty is just front and center. And you learn that he is in control of everything. And I won't rehearse the entire sermon, but I, I should make this clear. When we say God's sovereign, what do we mean by that? And the very simple way we could state it is this. God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. And that's what we mean. That God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. And that was true of Daniel. That's true of Harvest Baptist Church. That's true of your life that truly God is in control. But we covered the first two verses, and this week we're going to read down through verse number 8, and we're going to cover a few more. So Daniel 1, verse number 3, we find this. 
And the king, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, spake unto Ashpenaz. What a name, Ashpenaz. He probably was called an abbreviated nickname like Spaz or something like that growing up. But Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom and cunning in all knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king." Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, unto Hananiah of Shadrach, to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. And Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its potency. I pray that you would take these verses tonight and that you would help us with them. Lord, I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment just to pray for our world. When we think about terrorist attacks in France and coups in Turkey and and what's going on, it feels a bit chaotic right now. Lord, to think of our country with so much unrest, even injustice at times, Lord, there's, there's a lot that scares us. When we think about Harvest Baptist Church, Lord, we want you to work in and through all of these circumstances. Father, tonight I pray that you would unleash your truth just one verse at a time as we walk through these verses in Daniel chapter 1. We love you, Nassus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. It has been said that every man has a price. And this, this price, this point at which morals are set aside, convictions are compromised, where the conscience is ignored. And in Daniel chapter 1, we're introduced to a teenage boy, probably no more than 15 years old, who it's obvious has uncompromising convictions. This young man does not have a price. He is holding firm to what he knows to be truth, and he has a rock-ribbed assurance in the word of God, and that he is going to do what's right. This is a youth who drew his proverbial line in the sand, and he was rewarded by God for doing it. And tonight, with the help of Daniel 1, verses 3 through 8, I want to ask you a very, very simple question. And the question is this, what are your non-negotiables? What are your non-negotiables? And when I say your, I mean your not moms or dads, not Harvest Baptist churches, not what my grandparents taught me, not Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton's, although I don't think you would find many there, but not anybody else's. What are your non-negotiables, things that you can sink your teeth into and that you can stand firmly and know I'm doing the right thing no matter what anyone says, no matter what sway comes my way, This is absolutely positively what I am going to hang on to. We find in Daniel chapter 1 a young man. He's very young. He's 15. We think of him in in the pictures that we see in the children's books of the lion's den, and maybe he has a beard, and he's in his 40s or 50s or 60s. But at this point in time, he's young. He could even be as, as young as 13 years of age. 
And we find a young man who truly has some non-negotiableness in, in his life, that he knows this is what I'm supposed to do and I'm going to do it. So I want us to look and just kind of dissect this verse by verse. And I want us to see this first. I want us just to see Daniel's description. And Daniel's a unique character. He is probably one of the most described characters in all of the Bible. It is rare for us to get a glimpse into someone's intellect and their upbringing and their ancestry and what they're capable of. But the Bible does give us that and it affords us this opportunity to see who Daniel is. And I think that this will help us as we walk through other portions of Daniel and we observe his character. So first, I want us just to observe this, Daniel's ancestry. Look in verse number three. We find that the king speaks to Ashpenaz. He says, look, I want you to select me some guys to bring back to Babylon. And here's what I'm looking for, Ashpenaz. He says, first of all, I want you to bring, in the middle of verse number three, certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Taking royal captives in this day and age was a common a common practice, and it serves several purposes. First is, if you have a vassal state that you're ruling over and that you're controlling, to have kidnapped some of the children of those who are royalty would serve you well. You now had some leverage in case they wanted to revolt against you or stop paying their taxes to you or tribute. You now had some leverage with them. It also could have served a purpose of having a trophy. That if I'm Nebuchadnezzar and I've conquered all these different lands, and I'm bringing back the royal seeds to now serve me and to sit in my court, it's kind of refreshing and prideful for me to look every day and see these young men almost as trophies in my palace that remind me constantly that I've conquered, I'm big, I've flexed my muscles, I'm strong. But the primary reason that, that Nebuchadnezzar is bringing these boys back is to help him rule these vassal states. Nebuchadnezzar is far, far away without the ability to email or FaceTime in or see them or take a, a flight over. And so how do you control so much territory, really the known world, without being there presently? And you have to have people that you train to do it. And this was commonplace for them to take young men who were of royal descent, were being prepped and groomed for wanting to lead anyway, and to bring them back to Babylon to train them, to, to give them your teaching and your training and put them back in Jerusalem or Judah or, or Egypt, even if you conquered there, wherever, and to have them rule on your behalf. And this, this was more acceptable for the Jews that would be remaining in these lands to have someone ruling who knows their ancestry, knows their history, knows what, the, what makes them tick, knows the law, but at the same time knows what King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon wants. So this was common practice, and he takes boys, basically, that are of royal descent. We learn that, that Daniel has in his pedigree, in his bloodline, some royalty flowing through his veins. But then we see this. We see Daniel's not just his ancestry, but his appearance. It says in verse number four, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored. Now, does that mean that they searched Daniel up and down and they couldn't find a birthmark on him? Does that mean that he's never had a pimple in his life? Probably not. Probably not. I think it is very apparent that Daniel is a good-looking young man. Even this would be good for them, that he could sway people even with just his appearance and, and convince them possibly to obey the Babylonian state that's now been implemented there inside of Judah. But the bottom line is this. If you put teenage Daniel in the mall amongst all the other teens on a Friday night, he would stand out. 
That could be his clothing. That could be the way he cut his hair. That could be his build. That could be just the way he looked. But as a whole, his appearance, he just stood out in a good way. I, years ago, went with a group of buddies to the Price is Right in, in L.A. I was in Southern California getting my, my Master of Arts degree in theology there, and we decided that a group of us were going to go down and we're going to be in one of these filmings for the, for the Price is Right. So we go, and it's, it's an interesting process to go through. They actually interview you before you get in, and they're just looking for crazy people that they can call forward. If you've ever wondered how do they select those people, they just pick the craziest ones. So we had a crazy guy in our group named Kevin, and Kevin was selected. He went down. He won the bid. He won a couple games. He spun the wheel and spun a dollar exactly. Went to the showcase showdown, and I'm not kidding you. He won the showcase showdown. Drew Carey bid for him, actually. He was so hyped up and so nervous that he bid $600,000 million. Like, that's what he said. You can watch it on YouTube. I'm not kidding. And Drew Carey said, do you mean $32,000? He said, yes, that's what I mean. And he won the showcase, and we ran up there, and we jumped around, and we got in the cars, and we had fun. But I'll never forget, while they're filming it, there's not commercial breaks because they're not filming it live, but they do pause, and they wipe the sweat off of Drew Carey, and they put some more makeup on him, and he'll talk with the audience a little bit. And there's a group of maybe 12, 15 of us sitting there, and he looked down at us, and he said, Pentecostal boys, how you doing? And we yelled back to him, we're Baptists, we're not Pentecostal. But he took a moment to, to joke with us and have some fun. And he said these words. He said, you guys just look different. And we probably did. We, we, the college we went to had rules that you had to wear khakis or a collared shirt and things like that. So that probably helped us stand out. But whatever it was that day, there was something that a Drew Carey, I don't know if the man's a Christian or not, looked down at this audience of 350 or 400 people and saw this little group and just thought they stand out in some way and he was able to at least distinguish that we were somehow Christian in some regard. And this, this is, is Daniel to a degree. He, his appearance makes him stand out in a good way to Ashpenaz who is selecting these young men to bring back to Babylon. But we also see this. We see Daniel's aptitude. Look after uh, verse number four. Children in whom was no blemish but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, and understanding science. My main man, Danny, is a brain. This guy, he's, he spent some time in some textbooks. Like every university in America wants to write him a scholarship right now. This is a very smart young man who has been brought up, no doubt, in the Jewish law, in the Torah, no doubt in other social graces and how to act in the palace and how to behave and how to handle these situations. But Daniel has some, he has some learning. He has some knowledge. He has some understanding. He has some skill when it comes to science, the Bible says. And, and really, he is growing himself intellectually. I think this is a very potent point for all the teenagers in the room. You've had a great week, teenagers. You've had Powerhouse and Kenny Baldwin here, and I'm sure that it's been an, an awesome, fantastic week. Many of you have made decisions. But you look at this man who obviously, Daniel, has rolled up his sleeves, who sunk his teeth into some textbooks at some point in time, and he's challenged himself academically. And I would say to all the teenagers in the room, you have a unique opportunity right now in your life where you have the most discretionary time that you will ever have probably until you retire. 
as, and I know the teenagers in the room, you don't feel that way. You don't feel like I have a lot of discretionary time. But you have more right now than you will have when you're 25 or when you're 30 or when you're 35 or when you're 40 or 45. And now is the time, teenagers, for you, honestly, to, to roll your sleeves up and to sink your teeth into some things as well. For you to apply yourself and to do well in school. Now is the time during the summer months. Pick up an instrument. Start to learn it. Start to learn a craft. Start to learn a second language so that you can go to Nicaragua and speak to people in their own tongue. There's a lot of things that you honestly, as teenagers and parents, we should do our, our best probably to hold their feet to the fire and to make them apply themselves. But here's a young man who's maybe 15 years of age who is obviously very academic and very smart. He has put down his Pokemon Go app and decided to stop finding Pikachu and, and pick up a textbook for a moment. And if you don't know what Pokemon Go is, that's okay. You can Google it later. But Daniel, has some, he has some aptitude. He also has ability. Look at the end of verse number four. And such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Now, when we say Chaldeans, that and Babylon really are synonymous. Babylon is the geography, it's the region, it's the country. Chaldean is the culture. The Greeks did this as well. The Greeks, that's, that's who they were, that's their ancestry. You can go to Greece, but they had a Hellenistic culture is what they called it. Or when, when Alexander the Great conquered lands, he would Hellenize is what they called putting, implementing the culture into the culture that was already there and existent. And so when it says Chaldeans, it's talking about Babylon, but it's referring to their culture. And it says that Ashpenaz is to select out young men who had ability to stand in the king's court. He's looking for young men who have enough social graces to be able to handle themselves in front of the king. This same word ability is used in Matthew. You have the parable of the master who distributes to his servants talents. And he gives to one servant five talents. And he gives to one servant two talents. And he gives to one servant one talent. The, the one he buries it, and then he comes back and he's, dis, he's displeased with them. But the Bible says that the master gave to the servants. How did he know to give this one five, this one two, this one one? The Bible says that the master gave to each man several according to his ability. That the master had a sense of how much can I trust these stewards with? What opportunities can I afford them? What can I give them? What can I leave in their hands? And Ashpenaz is looking for young men who they could give the ability to serve in the king's court, that they could give someone a big responsibility. These are young men that can put something heavy on their shoulders and be able to ha handle it, be able not to crack under the pressure. And this is who Daniel is. This is who his friends are, and we'll see them here in just a moment because we observe not just his ancestry, not just appearance or aptitude or ability, but we also observe his affection. And look in verse number 6. The Bible says, Now among these were of the children of Judah, there was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now this is part of my, the name portion of this is actually part of my favorite part of this passage. That when you take these young men's names, you come away with this very clear observation that their parents were very religious. Take Daniel. You can also say Daniel like this, Danny L, E-L. E-L is a Hebrew word for God. You have El Shaddai. You have Emmanuel, God with us. And this Daniel's name, it'd be like us naming our, our child 
Danny Jesus or Danny God that built into his name was, was the word God. And his, Daniel's uh, name means God is judge. Daniel was probably named after David's son, David's second-born son. David had six sons when he was in Hebron, and his second-born son was Daniel. You had first-born Amnon, as in Amnon had a friend, was tempted with his sister Tamar. Second-born was Daniel. Third-born was Absalom. And so he's probably named after David's son, Daniel, but his, his name literally means God is judge. Then you have Hananiah. Hananiah's name means Jehovah is gracious. Then you have Mishael, same thing. You could say Mishael, God's built right into his name, which means, and this is my favorite definition of all the names, who is what God is. That's what Mishael means. Who is, it's a rhetorical question. Who is as strong? Who is as big? Who is as merciful? Who is as great as God is? And that's, that's Mishael's name. Then you have Azariah, the Lord helps. So we, we take their names and these connote, we don't know that his parents were specifically religious, but we would assume so since they're giving their boys these names. I often, my wife and I, our two children, Brennan Truth and then Willow Grace, who's, who's unborn. When I tell people their names, I always include the middle name because I love that middle name. And oftentimes people will ask me, are you a Christian or do you go to church? Because they hear truth and grace and it just kind of lets them know I think maybe their family is attached to the Bible somehow. I think maybe they're Christians in some regard when they hear that. And people would hear their names, Daniel and Azariah and Hananiah and Mishael, and you would automatically know their parents brought them upright. Their parents wanted them to have the best and to know the law and to be involved in this. And we learn in just a few verses that this is obviously true, that Daniel does have a bulldog grip on the law, that Daniel does know what's right and wrong, that Daniel has been taught right from wrong. And I am personally very thankful for parents who did their dead level best. Were they perfect? No. Did they fail? Yes. Did they probably miss a few things along the way? Certainly. We all do. But I'm thankful for parents that did their best to raise me the right way. I'm thankful for parents who had a set of non-negotiables that no matter how hard I pushed, it didn't matter. They were just holding firm and that was attached to the Bible and this is what it was. I'm personally very grateful for parents who taught me Sunday is the Lord's Day, we go to church, the end. There was no consideration. There was no, Mom, we're going to church tomorrow. Let's see if we wake up in time. And I know I'm talking to the Sunday night crowd. You all probably are in church a lot, I would assume. But I'm thankful for parents who taught me no matter what, we're just going to church. It's God's day. It's what we're doing. We're worshiping him. When we went on vacation, it wasn't a question. We went to church. We found some church somewhere, and that communicated to us as children that this really is a big deal. This really is a non-negotiable. It's not 50 weeks out of the year we're going to be in church, but there's an exception clause here for when we're on vacation and when we're on this special trip that we just always did it. I, I even think back to when I got married, and this was just instinctual for me that we got married, we went on our honeymoon, and my dad actually paid our way for us to fly to St. Lucia, which is, which is in the Caribbean, and I'm very thankful that he did, and we had a great time. But it was just kind of instinctual for me to email a missionary beforehand and say, do you run a bus? Can you come to the resort and pick us up? We just went to church, even in the midst of a honeymoon, because what else are we going to do? Why would, we, why would we possibly not go to church? This is a non-negotiable. It's Sunday. It's God's, we're just going. So you find that Daniel has this upbringing 
that even though for the last four years they've been under King Jehoiakim and the nation of Israel has turned their back on God, even with that being the case, Daniel has an upbringing that has taught him to really have confidence in God's word and to have his own set of non-negotiables. But we don't just see the description of Daniel. We see this. We see Daniel's deconstruction. We'll find that Babylon has a program in place to deconstruct what Daniel has known. They have been conquering lands for quite some time. Judah's not their first vassal state. This isn't Nebuchadnezzar's first rodeo. This is his first year as king, but he's been around the block a time or two. And they have a program in place to take not just the Jewish boys, but the Egyptian boys or the Assyrian boys or whatever boys you want to take when you conquer them and to turn them into loyal subjects that are going to serve the Babylonian Empire. And we find that it's laid out here that this is the program that they're going to try to implement. And I dare say we'll see a lot of parallels to our current society and culture that they're going to try to change and deconstruct what these boys know to be true. We see this first. We see that physically they're going to try to deconstruct him. Verse number three, the first verse here, says that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, speaks unto Ashpenaz, and it says that Ashpenaz is the master of his eunuchs. Go down to verse 7. Unto whom, talking about the same guy, Ashpenaz, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave name. Look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart, then at the very end of the verse we find this, therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, think for just a moment. The prince of the eunuchs would probably be responsible for ruling over who? The eunuchs. Some of you said it. You A+. Plus. You all are a smart crowd. He's probably responsible for, for ruling over the eunuchs. A eunuch being someone who served the king, yes, but a eunuch also being someone who had been castrated. So Daniel and his friends are physically, literally going to be deconstructed to some degree once they enter into their Babylonian captivity. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for maybe why that would be. Part of it would be the king's harem, that now you don't have to worry about, I have my women and these men can serve them and there's, there's no worry there. Part of that would be that a lack of testosterone is going to make them much more level-headed. It's going to make them much more docile, less prone to anger. You're going to find that if this, is, if this is done early on, then these young men are going to be, they're going to grow taller because their, plate, their plates and their bones are not going to join together as quickly. They're going to be smooth-skinned and fairer to look upon. So there's a lot of reasons why possibly this would take place, but this is part of the program for Daniel and the young boys. And some have tried to look at, at this passage and say, well, the Bible doesn't explicitly teach that this happened to Daniel and his friends. But I, I would say this. I think it's very clearly indicated here. It's also prophesied. We talked last uh, two weeks ago about Isaiah. And Isaiah told Hezekiah when the Babylonians came into the kingdom and Hezekiah shows them all of his goods and all of his treasures, that Isaiah looked at him and, and basically said, you're dumb. Why would you do that? There's going to come a time where Babylon's going to come in. They're going to take all your treasures away. And then he says this. He says, your seed, Hezekiah, is going to be carried away, and they will be made eunuchs to stand in the court of Babylon. And he predicts that this is going to happen for him. We even find that the first century 
Historian Josephus, he writes and says just this, that Daniel was of the seed of Hezekiah, that he was made to be a eunuch. And part of this program, part of this deconstruction happens physically inside of Daniel and Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah's lives. This happens. But also culturally, inside of that same verse, verse number three, Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel. Sometimes I ask myself, why go through the hassle? This Babylon, uh, the journey to Babylon is 750 to 800 miles from Jerusalem. To put that in perspective, take off walking and walk to New York City, then walk back. That's how far these young men are traveling. Now, do they have a donkey? Do they have a mule? Maybe. Do they have a camel? I don't know. All I know is that this is a haul. It's going to take them months to get from Jerusalem to the land of the Chaldeans, to Babylon, but they want to bring them there. Why? Why not do distance learning? Why not create some online university and just sign them up and roll them on the computer? Why not just send somebody there to train them inside of Judah? Why haul them all the way back to Babylon? The reason is this. They want these boys to be immersed in the Babylonian culture. They want these young men to be completely, totally surrounded by head to toe Babylon, the Chaldean culture, and all that it had to offer. They wanted to frame their minds in such a way and teach them and immerse them inside of Babylon in such a way that they could, they could stamp their impression on these boys through the culture and through what they're going through. But even with all of this, we'll find out in a few moments that this is not going to shake Daniel's belief in the sovereignty of God. Even with, I have to think, if I'm, a, if I'm a young teenage boy, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. You're a young teenage man of royal descent, good-looking, smart. You have everything going for you. Possibly you're considering who you're going to marry in the next couple years. I mean, the world is essentially at your, at your fingertips to a degree. And overnight, you are now a captive you are now physically being altered. You're being carried away into the land of Chaldeans. I would think that this would maybe cause you to step back and just doubt for a moment, what's God doing? Is he really in control? How could he let this happen to us? How could he let this happen to me? How, how could he afford me this opportunity? I don't understand. But what you find is that that, that doesn't take place. Daniel is so sure in God's ruling and his ability to answer his prayers and to come through for him that he's willing to roll the dice, if you will. I don't think he saw it as rolling the dice and say, this is what God wants from me. I'm going to do it. Here are my non-negotiables. I don't know if this happened, but in the Mark Likens mind, this is how I picture it, that you have this caravan of people taking these boys among and other captives as well, I don't think it was just these four, but taking other captains to Babylon. I picture Ashpenaz like riding on a two-hump camel with Daniel kind of in tow. He's not, be, there's not a whip being cracked, but his hands are bound, and he's just kind of trudging along through, up along the, uh, the seaboard there, and then down into Babylon. And I picture, I don't know if this happened or not, but I picture that Daniel kind of wiggles his hands loose from the ropes and, and cups them a little bit, and he looks down, and he looks up, and looks down, and just starts singing his favorite psalm. He's got the whole world in his hands. I think he looks back at, at uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Join with me, boys, on the second. 
He's got the Hebrew boys in his hand. Everybody, our favorite verse. He's got Nebuchadnezzar in his. I just see them with this, with this belief in the sovereignty of God as they're tracking through the desert into Babylon that God still has us in control. We are in his hands. We are, we are completely and totally under his care, and he's going to take care of us. But they, they alter, they deconstruct him physically, culturally, intellectually. Look in verse 4, the very end of, the, of verse 4. So they want these men who have ability to stand in the king's palace, and it says this, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Verse number five, and the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them, and it gives the program here, three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Daniel has entered into Babylonian grad school. He has three years of just totally and completely being bombarded with the learning and the tongue, not just the language, but the learning of the Chaldeans. And don't think for a second that this was not anti-religious to Daniel. That would include their pantheon of gods. That would include how they viewed Yahweh in, as an inferior god to Baal or to Nebo or to whatever god they had. This was going to be in complete and total contradiction to what Daniel and his friends have known intellectually as far as learning goes, and they are going to, they're going to have the school system of their day, if you will, stand up and start to teach anti-God. Does that at all sound familiar? That you have a young man, I would dare say his gender identity has been questioned to some degree, his culture has changed right before his very nice, almost overnight. Now he's in the school system where it has nothing to do with the God that he's known. It's completely and totally anti what he would have known as a Jewish young man. And yet, even through all of that, he's going to stand. And I, I dare say for us as a church family, as Pennsylvanians, as Americans, we can draw a lot of parallels we can shake our heads. We can want it to change. We can hope that our culture changes. We can vote for who we think would best do that in November. But the truth of the matter is, it shouldn't matter. Our, our culture does not necessitate our faith. Our belief system, our non-negotiables, our sets of here's our principles, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, should not matter if the world or America starts calling good evil and evil good, which it is. The vast majority of Christians over the past two millennia have lived in cultures that were utterly and completely anti-God. And I'm thankful that as American we have Christian roots. I'm thankful we were founded upon Christian principles. I'm thankful that people came here to get religious liberties. I'm thankful that I can stand up and preach from a Bible tonight. I'm thankful that we are democratic and that we have a republic, that we can, that we can vote in November. There may even be someone that's super involved in politics in the room. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a delegate in the room and you're going to be at the RNC in Cleveland tomorrow or you're going to be at the DNC in, in Philly next week. I, maybe there's a super delegate. Bernie Sanders wants your vote if you are. But the, I don't know who's in the room, how involved, how involved you are, but really that shouldn't matter. We as Christians have a set of 
principles and beliefs, and you can amend the Constitution, you can change the Bill of Rights, you can rip up the Declaration of Independence if you want. It doesn't matter for what we believe. And it didn't matter for what Daniel believed. His culture changed, but it, does, it didn't change him. It didn't change his heart. Yes, it affected his language. Yes, he, he learned a different language. Yes, it, it altered him physically, but it didn't affect his heart. He still had a set of non-negotiables that he was unwilling to surrender to anybody or to any culture. Then I see this. They were affected spiritually. The Bible says in verse 5, and this was the heart of the matter for Daniel, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Why, why is this spiritual? It's spiritual for a couple of reasons. First is this, this food probably, it doesn't say that it was pork or that it was fish without scales or that it was meat of a carnivore. It doesn't specifically say that, but probably it wasn't kosher. Odds are this was meat that was against the Jews' diet, and it was more than a diet. It was, it was their laws. It was their religious structure. This was against the Word of God, the Torah, that Daniel had known and practiced his entire life. And probably furthermore than that, these meats were offered many times to pagan gods or idols, and it was a sign that if you ate those meats, that you were giving some sort of acquiescence or some sort of credence to the gods they were offered to. This is actually a big deal in the New Testament. They talk about meats that are, that are offered to gods, and this is brought up inside of Romans and several other places. But Daniel here knows, A, this isn't kosher. B, these are being offered to other deities. And this is against the Bible. This is against what he has known. This is a, a spiritual matter for Daniel. And this is not just unique for Daniel. This is really all throughout from now continuing on, you can even read Jewish history, uh, history books like Maccabees and find that there are Greek kings and rulers who are, who are basically murdering and killing and committing genocide against Jews who refuse to eat meat. So this is not just unique to Daniel, but this happened to Daniel. And this is a spiritual issue. This is a Bible-based issue. This is a biblical issue for him. But then lastly, I, we see this. His deconstruction happened personally. And this is what verse number 7 says. The prince of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, gave names. So we already covered what their Hebrew names meant. But he gives unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, unto Hananiah of Shadrach, of Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Now I feel for Abednego because we oftentimes just insert an extra N in there and call him a bend-to-go, like bend, like you bend forward or backwards, but there's no in there. I feel for him because people do that with my name. My name is Likens, and they oftentimes just give an extra N and call me Lincolns. So now you know how to say my, my last name properly. But Abednego is his name, and what they're doing is they're personally affecting these boys. They're taking their Jewish names and they're giving them, they're, they're basically taking Jehovah or El and they're replacing it with Babylonian gods. Belteshazzar means may Bel, the god Bel, B-E-L, protect his life. They've substituted Jehovah God for the Babylonian god Bel. Shadrach, best we can tell, means command of Aku. Aku was the moon god. Meshach, they've taken this 
who is what God is. You could say Meshach as Meshach Aku. They've taken Meshach and they've basically just inverted it. Who is what Aku is. And they've just flipped the script on his name. And Abednego is servant of Nebo. That they have personally taken what they're, what they're going to call these boys every time they say their name, and they've substituted the one true God for their false gods. And they're going to be constantly reminded every time they, they say their names that you are no longer Jewish, that this is, now we're putting this deity in there, now we're referring to you in this way, and they personally affect Daniel. I would say this, they're attempting to erase all traces of God from their lives. They are taking an eraser to everything that they've known, to all of their upbringing. They are, they are deconstructing these boys and other boys, I'm certain, in a very systematic, neat, orderly way. And by now they have a process that they're, they're running the boys through the mill and it's, it's producing the product that they want. And we, as Christians, sometimes feel possibly how Daniel felt. That it feels like the world is taking an eraser to all that is Christian that we hold near and dear to our hearts. We feel like more and more Christmas is Xmas. We feel like the laws are changing against us. Like, is it, is it going to be possible that in a few years we won't be able to preach from a Bible or we won't have the religious liberties that we have or we won't, we won't be able to say, thus saith the Lord, and this is right and this is wrong. And we can, we can relate with Daniel and how he feels that he's being deconstructed on a number of levels, including personally. But lastly, and this is, this is the real point of tonight, we see this, we see Daniel's decision. In verse number 8, you find that Daniel purposed in his heart, in such a famous verse, but he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Daniel's heart is fixed. He is resolute. He is determined. He is sure. He is totally and completely purposed that I am not going to do this. And the question I ask myself when I come to this passage is why that? Out of all the things that are happening to you, out of all the things that you could throw your hands up and protest about, why this one? Why not say, I'm not going to be called uh, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego? Why not say, you're not going to call me Belteshazzar. I don't, I don't worship Bel. I worship Jehovah God. Why not throw your hands up about the learning that they're going to, be, that they're going to give to you, which is anti-religious to you? Why this one? And the, the answer is this. Daniel's decision was biblical. This is the only item that they've introduced to Daniel's life that stands in clear contradiction to the Scripture. Do I think he liked the name change? No. Did Daniel like the fact that they're altering him physically? I'm sure not. But this is the only item that's been introduced in his life that is in clear, direct violation of God said, don't do this. Daniel here is exercising a proper conscience in matters that are of real importance. Do I think he would have changed a lot of things? Yes, I do. Was Daniel taking a stand? Yes. Did Daniel have a bulldog grip on his convictions? Yes. Did Daniel have some non-negotiables? Yes. But were those non-negotiables anchored in something that was just kind of Bible light 
that was roughly based off of Scripture? No. He's only attaching himself and really taking a non-negotiable stand on something that is clearly in the Bible. He's not cherry-picking the Bible to find what he wants and what he doesn't like, and let me put this in there because this would be more comfortable to me. He's only taking a stand on things that are Bible-based. And we all know that cherry-picking the Bible can be very detrimental to anyone's Christian life. I'm sure, I'm sure that you've heard the story about the preacher, who, and if you haven't, you're going to hear it now. I'm sure you've heard the story of the preacher who was looking for something to preach on Sunday morning, and he prayed, God, help me. Just, would you lead me to the right verse? And he, he flopped open the Bible, and he put his finger on the page, and there was Matthew 27, 35. Judas went and hanged himself. He thought, that's ominous. Maybe, maybe I should, you know, repray. Lord, confess, if there's any sin, get out of my life. Please, let's try this again. So he opened it up. He put his finger on the page, and there was Luke 10, 37. Jesus saith, go and do thou likewise. And he thought, I can't do that. So he, he stopped, and he prayed a little more. God, I really need your help. And he opened it again, and he pointed to John, John 13, 27. And Jesus said unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. <laughs> you, now that's a silly illustration. But when you cherry pick the Bible, and you want to just take your favorite excerpts from here and here and here without any context, and just string them all together, you can end up with some heresy you can end up having a non-negotiable that really shouldn't be a non-negotiable. You can end up taking a stand and out of a good conscience, meaning to do what's right, but because, because it's not actually truly what, what the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, this is right, this is wrong, then you can end up making a mistake. But Daniel doesn't make that mistake. There's a lot that's introduced to his life, a lot. But there's one item the food and the drink that he says, I, I cannot do that. I won't. I'm purposing in my heart. I'm not going to do it because that is the one item that clearly, totally, and completely stands out against God's word. And I know that I should not be doing this in a clear conscience. I cannot. And I would say this. Daniel was not someone who drew a line in the sand just to draw a line in the sand. Daniel did not, he, he was not, well, let me get a non-negotiable here and let me, you know, it's a new year, New Year's resolution. I'm going to pick another non-negotiable and put a line right there and a line right there and a line right there and box himself in with non-negotiables that shouldn't have been that way. Daniel's line in the sand was clearly biblical, the end. That, that was all that he was concerned about, even though the other things weren't spiritual. He didn't like them, but... That was the only line in the sand he was going to draw. And we, we could do well to learn from Daniel that our lines in the sand, our non-negotiables, our this is what I have a bulldog grip on, should be this book, the end. This is, this is what we base all matters of faith and practice on. This is what we should base our lives on. This is what we should base our convictions and our non-negotiables on, is this book, the end. If it's in there, great, got it. If it's not, then we can certainly draw some biblical principles. We can try to make a wise decision, but it's not a non-negotiable. Everything that's a non-negotiable should be in this book for us as Christians. But I'll say this lastly. Was it a biblical decision? Yes, it was. But it was a personal decision. You find that Daniel purposed in his heart. He didn't walk. You don't find anywhere in the Bible that he walked through the line and he got, he got Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael together and said, boys, we've got to do something about this. We've got to band together. You don't find that he went through the dorms of Babylon preaching to the other boys. 
All you find is that in his own heart, in his life, in his mind, personally, this is not okay, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to it. And it, this hasn't even worked itself out externally yet. We're going to see next week how practically and pragmatically this plays out, and Daniel begins to communicate this non-negotiable, and you'll find that he wasn't as dogmatic as maybe you would think he'd be. But this hasn't played itself out externally yet. It is completely and totally internally that Daniel... Is, is telling himself, I'm purposely in my heart, this is a decision I'm making, I'm not going to let this go. And Daniel's handling of this is going to set the tone for the entire book. The rest of Daniel is going to be, is really going to be built upon how he handles this situation, and how he sees God come through and flex his muscles for him and really save the day. And church, let me say this, wherever life takes us, whatever it brings us, However difficult our personal problems are, we must remain faithful to God. We must remain faithful to his word. Daniel had the courage and the maturity to say a firm no. And we would be wise to take a page out of his book and say, there are, there are some items in my life that, Lord, help me. I need the courage and the maturity to say no. And it's easy to think that companies are corrupt and embezzling is wrong until it's your boss that's doing it and turning him in may get you fired. It's easy to take a, a stand against that sin until your own kid decides to do that sin. It becomes a little tougher then. It's easy for us to pedestal our convictions or our decisions when really they don't have to take any root in our lives and they don't have this pinnacle moment where it's going to come to fruition. It's easy to say, I'm honest. We should tell the truth. I'm a Christian. But then a couple little lies in our taxes are going to save us three grand. So uh, it's okay. Wink, wink. Daniel had the ability and the courage and the tenacity to say, no, this is my non-negotiable. It's based on the Bible. It's a personal decision I'm making. I'm not going to hold everybody else accountable, but I know for me, I can't do this. This is something that goes in clear contradiction to God's word and my conscience. So I'll ask you in closing, what are your non-negotiables? I'm not, I'm not going to try to give you a set of them. You have a Bible. You have the Holy Spirit. I think that he can lead you to some pretty easily if, if you just open the pages of his word. But what are non-negotiables? Is church an option? Is divorce an option? My father-in-law says, if, if my wife leaves me, I'm going with her. And I, I steal that line all the time. It's, it's not an option. If Maggie leaves me, I'm just taking off after her. What, what, are, what are our options for us? <clears throat> what are our negotiables? What, what is it that we have a bulldog grip on that I'm not going to release? This is what God said. I'm going to trust in him. Tonight, I hope that as we observe Daniel's resolve, that we'll be, in, we'll be inspired to write with indelible ink this truth of, Lord, whatever your book says, I'm going to treat it as a non-negotiable in my life. If you want me to do this, okay. If you don't want me to do this, okay. If, you, if you're telling me to go here, if, if your word is telling me to act this way or to change this behavior, okay. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to put my faith in you. Wherever the chips fall, they fall. But this is my non-negotiable. This is where I stand, and I'm going to stand on your word.